You're listening to Solar Insiders, the fortnightly podcast that shines the light on the world's biggest energy source. Solar Insiders is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy, and Sophie Voroth, the editor of One Step Off the Grid. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Next Tracker, delivering the most advanced solar tracking technology and the highest performing solar assets in the country. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Solar Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its EV-focused sister site, The Driven. And joining me as usual for the Solar Insiders podcast is the editor of another one of our associated websites, One Step Off the Grid, uh, Sophie Voroth. Sophie, welcome back to this podcast and welcome to 2024, albeit a bit belatedly. Yes, it's uh, very good to be here. Late February start, good enough for us. (laughs) <laughs> look, it is, it is. But look, rooftop solar hasn't been um, hasn't been sleeping at all. It's been having a very exciting time over over uh, over the spring and the summer. Um, it's now kind of back into the um, back into the main headlines of the mainstream papers, and that's something we'll probably come to a bit later on with the um, really good interview that you've got with uh, Stephanie Bashir from Next Advisory focusing on how we can maximize uh, distributed energy resources mm-hmm. and discussing a little bit about how the coalition would like us to think that's all we should be doing and <laughs> let's just stop doing large-scale renewables and just doing rooftops so um, they're kind of like well not even halfway there but a little bit there but um look let's just sort of um let's just run over maybe some of the um more interesting thing that's happened. First of all, I just wanted to congratulate you, Sophie, on your work with One Step Over the Grid over last year, which had a record year of traffic. It was up 50% from the previous year, and 2024 is going gangbusters. It's up 50% on last year. So um, well done on your work and your curation and your stories, and um, it's great to see. It is great to see, and it shows that all of these sort of stories of what consumers are doing and what small businesses are doing are um, really piquing people's interest and there's a lot of interest out there and uh, we need to harness it. We do, we do indeed. Um, Look, there's a few things um, happening. Uh, It's been a strong start to the year for installations, although I noticed that the AEMO and the regulator and various government authorities are still sort of unhappy about the um, consistency with which installers are observing the new inverter standards. So they're saying it's... um, it's reasonably high, but not high enough, and um, I think we're seeing why that's quite important now, um, particularly in in things like the Victorian sort of blackout thing that we had last time, because we you know just want to sort of minimise any sort of rolling impacts that you have with sort of solar PV disconnecting, and these new inverter standards do require them to be able to to ride through um, such events. Um, and then we saw also on December the 31st, um, which is since our last episode of this podcast, uh, Rooftop Solar meeting more, all and more of the demand in South Australia. In fact, their sort of, uh, local demand was actually minus 26 megawatts because of Rooftop <laughs> Solar. It was, on, it was on New Year's Eve granted, so not many people <laughs> working, but still, um, yeah. there was about 1.5 gigawatts of Rooftop Solar providing all the power needed in the whole state. That's uh, fantastic. That is, Look, it's truly remarkable. If you talk to people about that five years ago, they just go, no, nuts, that's not going to happen. And the lights will go out, but they didn't. And it did happen, and the, and, and, and the lights didn't go out. So that was pretty good. Yes, we all live to see 2024. 
<laughs> particularly in South Australia, yeah. Yeah. who I yes. note, who I note, have actually just um, fast tracked their hundred percent renewable energy target. Yes. That's an average over the year, um, which is pretty good. The South Australians have been a leader in the world and in Australia on this. Um, I've got to say that, uh, despite the fact that they are leading, they've never actually declared a target that they knew they wouldn't already meet. So I think the fact <laughs> that they fast tracked it is is uh, is good. Yes. Good. Um, but um, look, it just goes to show, like 100% wind and solar, it is net because they will be, you know, generating some gas and exporting, mm. importing other times. But um, that's really quite remarkable. So that's good. Um, Q cells. Um, on the sad news, um, mm. Q cells are leaving the country. Um, Sophie, why? They're quite a good product, I thought. Yeah, they were, they were targeting that sort of premium end of the solar market and they came with some really good products and a really good home battery package and they also sort of had a look at that sort of one-stop shop space where you come and get your solar panels and your battery and you sign up to a retail deal through them, which was, um, you know, really interesting and, and innovative. But it looks like they are struggling to compete against the cheaper products in this market and they're going to sort of put more of a focus on the US market, uh, including um, they've got a factory there that uh, they're focusing on manufacturing. So it's sort of that thing where we're seeing us, you know, we're losing thing, we're losing businesses to the US a little bit because of the IRA um, and also because of the, the very hard line policies they've had there against China panels which is um, not necessarily the right way to go about things, but, you know, it does make it more competitive for some. Well, it means that the prices in Australia have absolutely shot down and yeah. um, just extraordinarily um, low-cost modules um, being offered into the Australian market at the moment and people like Q-Cells just can't compete. And no. Look, it's, it's not just happening in Australia. We saw last week as well um, in Germany, Maya Berger, the Swiss-based company, mm. which is going to close down its biggest module factory in Europe, or the biggest module factory in Europe for the same reason, can't compete with prices, and off to America where they see some sort of protection and some sort of support, so um, some interesting developments. But I guess it means in the same time that Australia do lose a premium quality module maker, but costs are coming down, so it's not yeah. all bad. It's it's no. to see someone like Q-Cells go, um, and we hope the staff find new work in, in Australia, but um, it's, it's, it's not completely bad. No, I mean it's it just means that they're really it's really hard to compete against you know your your trainers and your longy and because they offer a pretty good product um and at a cheaper price and yeah so but yes it 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 sort of contrasts with this message that we have been hearing a little bit that people are got you know happy to go for more higher quality products with longer warranties and stuff I'm not sure that's necessarily true for the vast majority. No, no. Look, the other thing that's happened too is um, um, battery rebates. Um, the most recent one, I think, is in Queensland. $4,000 rebate for battery storage because I think yep. there's becoming a, a dawning, which you discussed with Stephanie um, Bashir um, in a moment, um, just about the importance of actually um, having batteries in the household, even though they, without such rebates, they may not make you know complete economic sense for well they might not sort of deliver a return on investment but um neither does your couch but um no. they can be very useful <laughs> nor your fridge nor your stovetop i can tell you that much but um yes i and look the thing is 
it has to start becoming more of a no-brainer for people and I think rebates will help with that. Um, also what will help is, is feed-in tariffs falling, which we've seen happen again just this week um, as well. So, and, and Stephanie says it's really, it still is, even with EVs coming and, and them being a, essentially a big, huge battery in your driveway, um, batteries are really important and it's going to come down to that sort of um, the controllability, the smarts, people being able to store their solar um, rather than losing it all to the grid while they're off at work, um, all of that stuff. Yeah. Well, look, we've been talking about Stephanie. I think we should actually have listened to um, Stephanie um, Bashir. Your, your, your talk with Stephanie Bashir, um, who's the principal of Nexa Advisory. Let's have a listen. Stephanie Bashir, welcome to Solar Insiders. Hi, Sophie. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to speak to you. We've mentioned before, we've worked together a lot, but uh, we haven't actually had an in-depth discussion before. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you today about all things consumer energy, how we can um, remove some of the barriers to rolling out more and more and how we can optimise it and and even start to use it as part of the grid. So um, what I wanted to start to do, start with is to touch on the report that uh, Nexa Advisory released in October of last year, which is a Seems like a long time ago, but <laughs> it was an important report and it was at a really important time because um, there was a real push in the industry to get policymakers to turn their focus a bit away from large-scale renewables, away from huge transmission projects, away from even big battery storage and onto small-scale renewables the solar on our rooftops, the batteries on our garage walls and uh, soon our EVs that will be plugged in. <laughs> so um, your report was, was a really interesting, it was uh, I think 16 pages, very um, comprehensive um, and it made a number of recommendations. Um, I'll just start by asking you what what is at the top of your list for policymakers to do to, to really get the ball rolling properly with consumer energy resources? Yeah, I guess um, a little bit of context behind the report. So we planned it that it would come out ahead of the November ministers meeting um, with a view that really trying to ensure energy ministers prioritize distributed energy or what everyone's calling now consumer energy resources as a key, uh, I guess, if you like, contributor to the energy transition. And, um, and so basically what we tried to do in the report, as you say, it is only 16 pages for a reason, which is really to look at what are some of the low hanging fruit that energy ministers can do now to ensure that we have uh, distributed energy, not only as a key contributor, but we're also engaging differently um, when it comes to some of the reforms needed to enable more solar rooftop and commercial solar and behind the meter storage. So <clears throat> one of the things that we identified is Australia right now needs to um, build six gigawatt of new renewable each year to meet the 2030 target but we are only building three gigawatts 
um, of new renewable generation. This is on the large scale side. So the ISB in 2022 that came out suggested that we need a total capacity of 79 gigawatts, 35 gigawatts of rooftop solar PV, and 44 gigawatts of large scale and wind and solar generation. So to, to kind of um, round it all up, with 21 gigawatts of rooftop solar PV already installed, 25 gigawatts of large-scale renewable generation built, we need a further 33 gigawatts of generation to meet that 79 gigawatts needed. And 14 gigawatts of that is rooftop solar. So it's a low-hanging fruit that needs um, prioritizing and paying attention to. Um, so at the last energy ministers meeting, obviously they uh, agreed to set up a task force um, and develop a consumer energy roadmap. It was announced in the communique by energy ministers, which is a huge win across the industry because everybody was singing from the same song sheet. And one of the key recommendations in the report back then was that we needed energy ministers to prioritize distributed energy and ensure that there is a national strategy to support the development of distributed energy across the country. Yes, because at the moment what we have is a whole lot of state policies and different incentives and that kind of thing, but nothing overarching. Correct. And the other thing that we've also got is we've had I mean, I've been in this space now for over 17 years. Uh, 15 years ago, when we started talking about, you know, solar and solar becoming the next big thing. And we also, um, I was working on the first VPP as part of my role at AGL. Um, it was basically, <clears throat> as part of that whole thing, we're still discussing the same issues. None of the things that we found as challenges back then uh, have been resolved in any way, shape or form. And so, you know, right now, refocusing on some of these challenges, which are highlighted in the report, are very, very important. And I'm happy to go through what some of those recommendations are. Great. Well, um, I think the, the first one we sort of covered and, and which is to set up a national policy and coordination officer which I think is super important and a national body to oversee it all. Um, what interests me is some of the, the recommendations you've put forward on the network side um, which I think is um, where some of the real trouble lies in the coordination side. Um, you know steering uh, tariff design um, and there's also a recommendation to re-examine the rule change allowing export tariffs. How can how are tariffs sort of um, blocking the way at the moment, and and, and distribution companies, um, you know, trying to find their way? Yeah, I mean the tariff reform for distributed energy, or if you like, the new energy space, is not a new issue. Um, you know, networks have been designed to, um, I guess, deal with a single linear energy flow. And what we've got since the solar take up and people taking up more solar is you've got that two-way energy flow um, on the system. Um, in addition to that, you know, 
none of the networks are actually incentivized to um, basically look at non-wire solutions uh, to support the network in, in uh, times of grid instability. Um, so tariffs actually play quite a big role in not only supporting um, customers, ensuring that they can benefit from the value of having solar rooftop or even batteries behind in their garages or one day with their EV is a battery, but also if done right, they could also be a contributor to support uh, the instability that networks will have on the grid. Um, and so one of the things that we're saying is needed is that approach where they adopt flexibility first when they're looking at network development um, and when DNSPs are looking at solutions to support the networks rather than building new assets, we're saying that tariffs can be a huge contributor if they are done right. And there's a lot of different tariffs that are being trialed at the moment. Export tariffs were also introduced, but export tariffs don't incentivize customers. They are basically a tax on, for customers who put solar on their rooftop. And that is not a way that we can gain the trust and confidence of people who we want to be able to engage with for that broader orchestration and participation in the broader energy transition. Yep. So it's sort of almost, uh, it's too soon for this kind of thing. Is that what you're saying? Or do you think they should never be a part of the system? Um, is it a bit like the, 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 the road user tax introduced in Victoria where it was just, you know, look, we're going to have to look at this, but why would you put the, bring this in now when we're trying to encourage people to take up this new te technology and encourage um, them to have faith that it's the right way to go. Yeah, and no, I agree with you. I don't think there's been any justification to date for introducing export tariffs. Even the AER, uh, the AER actually released a DNSP performance uh, report on basically how they're performing on the take up of solar and um and distributed energy. And in that report, they also have come to the conclusion that there is no justification for the introduction of or charging for exports at this point in time. And so with that in mind, I think one of the things that I think is missing from this whole conversation is the size of the problem. You know, what is actually the size of the network problem that we are all spending quite a lot of resources and a, a lot of years trying to address because none of that is actually visible at the moment, which goes to the next, uh, one of the other recommendations in our report is making network data transparency. And uh, basically that's talking about publicly available uh, network data, uh, both from a capacity perspective um, and constraints. Yeah. And that's going to be really, really important as we move forward. And there's an increased take up of batteries behind the meter, EVs come online. You know, it is very important as we're looking at community batteries, community energy, um, and non wired solutions 
So rather than building poles and wires, there's technologies now that exist that allows for these solutions to um, be adopted. But without that visibility on the network, it's very hard for whether it's consumers, their aggregators, their service providers, but also communities in the regions um, to be able to see and have visibility on what sort of solutions can they adopt. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking at some of these solutions you were talking about, so the DNSPs would say, you know, look, it might not be a problem now, but it will be a problem soon. Um, you know, how do we encourage people to consume their solar or how do we soak up all that solar that comes onto the grid, say, in the middle of the day, you know, um, and that, you know, that, that has been worrying AEMO um, to the point where they want to have this solar switch-off mechanism at hand in case of emergencies. How do we do that without having export tariffs or without having a stick? You know, what? how do we get consumers on board to say, look, this is what we need to do. Um, we need to change our thinking around how we use energy. Um, what are some of the ways we can do that that aren't sort of punitive or, or sort of that don't erode trust? Mm. So, I mean, grid st- instability issues do occur, but what they're like 2 to 5% of the year versus in the 98, 95% of the time where these customer-owned assets have been put in place to manage, ensure that they basically get um, lower energy costs, lower energy bills, and they feel more independent. Energy Consumers Australia did a survey a couple of years ago, um, and it identified, which we mentioned in our report, it identified the three reasons why actually people put in solar uh, in their homes. The first reason is to save money. The second reason is to be less dependent on mains electricity, and that comes to the trust factor. And the third reason is to protect the environment. But primarily, the first reason was to save money. And so by having that in mind as we're developing, you know, whether it's tariff reforms or any other um, resolving issues to support the network, um, I think it's really critical when we're talking about to save money and we have that as a key principle because, for example, export tariffs do basically are almost a tax on, um, on your bill for having solar rooftop at certain times when you're exporting. Um, and whilst, you know, I understand AEMO's issue around the emergency, there has been no steps taken to date, you know, around what can they do before they get to that point yeah. to minimize that issue. And so one of the things we think is really important is having incentive-based tariffs so that, you know, you're providing a carrot rather than a stick to customers. Yeah. Um, and that's where VPPs can play a really key role. However, Again, the network tariffs right now don't allow for VPP value to be more than what they're already getting, whether it's from solar rebates um, and other existing forms of value. So it has to be a lot more significant for customers to say, yes, I actually think 
this is going to be really good for me in terms of value. Yeah. It's a really interesting subject, the VPP, and it was extremely interesting to hear that you were you're involved with AGL uh, way back then, the very start of all of this. Um, and a bit disheartening to hear that we haven't really solved any of the issues. Is, is home battery uptake um, still a problem for VPPs or is that going to be changed with the uh, uptake of EVs? Like do, how important is it, do you think, that um, people install batteries at their house? Oh, I think it's it's very important. I think it it basically is the missing part of having a solar on your roof coupled by a battery and you're set to go. Yeah. Um, and that basically does help people become a lot more independent. Unfortunately, batteries are still not at a price point for the average Australian to to purchase. And this is where I think you know, at a federal and state level, I mean, Victoria has put out a, a energy battery target, but I think, and they're doing quite a few things around the incentives, mm. uh, even in Queensland, but I think we do need a national target for batteries. And the SRES plays a really important role there around ensuring that, you know, batteries have quite a, you know, that, that's what drove the solar uh, rooftop take up. Um, and other devices, I think batteries do have to have a strong focus in terms of targets and incentives to get that ball rolling um, so that we can reach the broader mainstream rather than what we've got at the moment. Yeah. And I saw an interesting um, question posed today actually on LinkedIn um, where it's it's – noting that um, sort of into the void, the, the policy void and, and probably, you know, I think the communica consumer communication void, um, some of these companies are jumping in now, you know, say like your AGLs or but even a lot of smaller ones and they're sort of trying to lock some of the more early adopter customers in to sort of long-term contracts and try you know and and often quite good and interesting deals but um there is a concern there too isn't there that if um you know if people feel like they have to sort of seek out these deals and and then sort of lock themselves in and that's you know going to be safer for them um this could be compromise how it's all rolled out as well do you think yeah, I think, you know, I guess one of the things that we also worked on a few years ago is customer protections in the new energy space. Um, I think there's a huge role for innovators and um, service providers that, you know, are not part of the current incumbency um, area because they're the ones who are going to bring in the new ideas, as we've seen with Amber and, and, and Flow Power and some of the other kind of more newer, nuanced players. They're the sorts of players that we should be encouraging um, in the industry to provide these services to customers. Um, and the reason for that, I think, because they do bring that innovation and they have the incentive to do so. Uh, whereas the big players, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder for those incumbents to move the ship around and, and try to basically cannibalize their own businesses. Um, and saying that, I think customer protections in this area is really important, but let's not go down the way that we had gone in the past and make sure that whatever 
regulatory frameworks that we set in place are principle-based. You know, it's based on principles that are focused on consumer outcomes, not based on regulation that are set in stone that within the years they're not fit for purpose anymore, but really are focused on protecting the system, which is what we've got at the moment. We've got regulation that is really focused on protecting the system rather than consumers. Yep. Because, yeah, I think that there's sort of been a push to move to this, not a push, but um, this idea of a one-stop shop where people can go and they can get solar, they can get a battery, they can get a retail deal all bundled in together, um, they can pay it off. It's a really attractive idea to a lot of customers, but it may not be the best approach. Yeah, but we've got to allow all of these to coexist. So another thing that we... In the, in, in the energy sector we do is we assume what people actually want rather than, uh, you know, allowing the different business models, different services to go exist because there is demand for them. Um, but ensuring that there's enough protections there and information transparency so that customers know what they're getting themselves into. Yep. So that they can still say... I'm not happy with this deal anymore. I'd yeah. like to switch and change. Yep, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Um, another recommendation, which is a bit more on the technical side, is um, the network voltage standards. Um, can you talk us through that? Because it's a bit complicated, but it's really important. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those technical topics that everyone kind of, their eyes glaze over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, I was one of those people, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, in 1993, Australia adopted the 230 voltage with a motion that in 20 years' time, we would all have 230 voltage uh, standard, um, you know, across our homes and, and everything else. But yeah. currently, we are still on average, volt, 240 volts is still the average across the board. Um, and so in Queensland, for example, they, I'll give you an example in Queensland, when they reduced the 240 voltage to 230 in 2018, it actually allowed 20, 35 to 40% network capacity to host more solar PV. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're saying here that it's a very low hanging fruit to do that. Mm. Okay, we do recognize there's a cost to it because networks do have to go out and actually change the voltage. So Victoria has implemented the voltage strategy, but it's over a 10-year period. We need to bring that a little bit closer to over the next three to five years. You know, otherwise we're not really trying, we're not capturing the full benefits and the capacity that we could otherwise have um, on the network to accommodate for solar rooftop PV. Yep. So bottom line is there's quite a lot of little, not little, but um, like you say, low-hanging fruit, technical things that DNSPs can do and regulators can do to, to improve things um, for to pave the way for more solar uh, without too many more technical issues or concerns. Um, and then meanwhile, on the other side, we really need to get start working out the controls and how to make it smart and, you know, harness it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole broader piece, you know, around the roles and responsibilities, the future roles of networks in a digitized world, which is really, really important. Mm. But developing that and waiting for that to happen is a long way off because as the ESB and others have been working on it before that it was the ENA roadmap and before that it was CSIRO. So this has been going on for years and years. Um, we can't wait for that. There are certain things that can be done now that are really low hanging fruit that can make a huge difference. And I think if anything, the data transparency piece is really critical and is the core for to enable a lot of these other things to happen. And so how do we unlock that? Is that a, a regulation thing we need to... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a few different dimensions to it. Ultimately, uh, the UK actually adopted the data transparency um, years ago. And what they did was basically uh, link the data transparency of capacity and constraints of the networks to uh, licensing arrangements. That could be a mechanism that we could use here in Australia because at the end of the day, we're dealing with networks who are also regulated monopolies and privately owned. So technically, the data that they have is and should be made public and transparent um, so that it enables non-network and non-wired solutions to take place but also helps, I guess, that visibility on what's happening around the networks and where the constraints are, whether to avoid them or provide um, solution options that can be adopted. But I think the other thing around the network data transparency is that, you know, network businesses would need to be digitized. So smart meters helps to do that, um, but also adopting the right systems so that we can have the um, digitization roadmap for the networks. And as networks are more digitized and transparent, that data should be made public and it should be an obligation on the D DNSBs to make that data public. Yep. Some would say that the DNA, uh, distribution annual planning report does provide uh, visibility into the networks. But that report, the template of that report is not fit for purpose. Um, it could be used to be expanded to include a lot of the capacity and constraints that is needed at a much granular level to allow energy solutions at a community level and household level. Mm -hmm. well, it sounds like a very good place to start. Mm. Now I'm going to uh, finish this chat off with a a slightly cheeky political question. <laughs> um, we've had, you know, some really clear um, campaigning from the coalition uh, federally, you know, just really starting to make its um, views known on certain parts of the energy transition. Uh, on the one hand, on the big side of the equation, there tends to be a bit of a block and delay and fear-mongering going on um not from everybody but from certain parts of the the national party in particular but uh i think last week um david little proud said that they would 
have a, this focus on on rooftop solar and and maximizing rooftop solar you know and he's selling that as a sort of look we'll move it the owners to the city and we will um you know take the t- attention away from all this big stuff that everyone apparently hates um but are we convinced that he gets it and uh are we reassured uh in any way i mean what what's the industry feeling about this do, do we think um they've got the right idea or or not well i think you know only a week before that they were um outside the parliament house asking for a moratorium on renewables and you know, for Australia uh, to think that we can rely on rooftop solar alone to decarbonize our energy system, I think, is uh, very naive. Um, we do need large renewables at scale. We also need to make sure that we are building the transmission to support the large renewables um, at the scale and efficiency that we need them to be built on. Currently, one of the biggest roadblocks for the large-scale renewables build-out that we are currently running behind on is the development of transmission. And so, you know, announcing that we um, we need rooftop solar for everyone, that's great, but we also need to make sure that we are accelerating the build out of renewable generation storage and transmission because we need electricity to do, be decarbonized and we need that cheap renewable generation to be accessible to all homes and businesses for that affordable and reliable electricity that we're all building to. Mm. And then we need that beyond that. You know, we talk about Australia becoming a clean energy superpower. We can't do that based on only rooftop solar. We can't let the people shoulder our energy transition. We are responsible, our governments are responsible ultimately to make sure that the coal power stations that are old and aging are being replaced by clean, cheaper, reliable power. And that means wind and solar and storage for now. It also means that we need the transmission backbone to take it from where it's built to where it needs to be. Mm. So, and to do all of this, we need also a focus on on engagement and on um, bringing, pe- bringing people bringing people along. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The focus really needs to be on making sure that the hosting communities that are hosting these large infrastructure projects are seeing the benefits and the vision of where we're going. Mm. You know, and rather than spreading misinformation, as we've seen from some of these leaders, we should be trying to get more people on board and and showing them the benefits um, more directly. Communities, whether they're in Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, in any state, we have regional communities who are hosting infrastructure that have energy poverty issues. Mm. How do we address these energy poverty for their communities? You know, there are regional community issues to make sure that they can also see the benefits of building the infrastructure. 
just because we build transmission and renewables in that region does not mean that their problems have gone away. No. Because that electricity is going elsewhere. So we need to actually address the concerns that are being raised by the communities to make sure that we're bringing people on board. Absolutely. Communication is going to be very, very important as well. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> more talking, more talking. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Stephanie. It's been really great to speak to you and to hear all of your expertise dating all the way back from the VPP beginnings at AGL, which is just fantastic. Um, you sh- you, you've certainly seen a lot. And I really hope uh, some of these messages start to get through. Hopefully. Thank Mm. you so much for having me, Sophie. You're welcome. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that was Stephanie Bashir from Nexa Advisory. Sophie, um, what was your big takeout from that? Well, I think the big takeout was that there's a lot of really, you know, quite relatively simple things that can be done to improve the plight of getting more solar onto the grid. You know, we always, we hear about, distribution companies saying that they're getting full we hear amo saying oh there's too much on the grid at once and that's all um you know true at points and everything but uh stephanie pointed out a number of things that can be done that are pretty low-hanging fruit to improve the situation just regulatory tweakings of of things uh we even discussed voltage uh on the distribution networks which um not everyone is is fascinated in but these are some of the things that can be done the other piece i think is just how important it is to bring consumers along um yeah to, well to... but i think one of the interesting thing about consumers is that now that there's such a growing interest in electric vehicles i think that's actually sort of um causing a lot of people to think quite differently about their solar systems mm. and what they're doing in the home um because with the solar, the solar module, you might get your bill every quarter or something like that. You don't really think about it. So they're on the roof and sort of doing their thing. With electric vehicles, you're thinking about how to charge it sort of every day, yeah. every second day. It's and, fuel. Well, it's fuel, but it's also making you think about how you can use other things more efficiently. And that sort of mm. leads to other conversations about in the house um, and the whole electrification thing, which is obviously sort of picking up speed. And um, look, you've had your own experience with electrification just recently. <laughs> what <are you? laughs> I have. It was quite a roundabout way to get there, but um, I have been um, trying my hand at using an induction cooktop, just a portable one, because in the storms from a couple of weeks ago here in Victoria, um, somehow my electric, uh, my gas stove uh, had its electrics blown. It was the only appliance that didn't make it back uh, after the brownout. And yeah, which, which is been... which is sorry to interrupt. Which is actually sort of contrary to this general thing that we read in mainstream media about the only thing that would actually survive it yeah. is a gas stove, but that was anything yeah. that didn't survive it in your case. And evidently, I have some sort of special one that you know it's not that that common. The the repairman was quite impressed with how un unnormal it is, which is always great to hear. <laughs> I don't know how I managed that, but I did. But in saying that, I'm sure I'm not alone. And also, I, I mean, I. Uh, for my sins, I have a uh, instantaneous gas hot water as well, which I also know for a fact doesn't work without electrons either. So it's it's interesting, you know, it, it doesn't survive that sort of argument. Uh, it's a whole different thing for people who live out in the country and have a, a gas bottle and, you know, they can definitely have hot showers and eat cooked food when they lose electricity. But 
on the reticulated network, uh, it, it certainly doesn't work out that way. Well, not for me anyway. And I and I not getting a new uh, stove. Uh, well, I'm not getting it fixed for another month. So I'm really going to be able to practice my induction skills, and I'm very much enjoying it, to be honest. It is, is, is it better? I mean, there's a lot, lot of there seems to be a lot of interest, a lot of discussion about it. I, you know, to tell you the truth, I've never actually used one myself. Well, I hadn't before either. I thought to my, I, I know, fifty years I've been using gas stoves, which is very Victorian, uh, and pe- people in Europe laugh at us that we haven't used induction. But um, I find it great. It, you know, it's that thing where you have to get used to the little quirks, and it's so much faster and. I imagine if it was a proper stovetop, it would probably be more responsive and controllable. This is just a one thing. But even so, it, it cooks really well as long as you know what temperature to put it on. Um, otherwise, yeah, you, you, but you're boiling your egg, you know, two minutes faster <laughs> at least. <laughs> like the water comes to a boil in under a minute. It's very exciting. Mm. Uh the problem is that the teenagers don't know how to use it and so therefore they've become even less helpful than they were before. Can they learn? Well, can I be bothered teaching them in four weeks is the question. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is no. <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, well, look, just, just a, temporary, uh, a temporary step towards electrification. Okay then, Sophie, look, um, um, great interview with Stephanie. Um, Thanks for that. Um, we're going to be at the Smart Energy Council, so we yeah. look to um, catch up with uh, many of our listeners and readers um, at that event. And um, we'll be back with another episode of the Solar Insiders podcast um, probably in about a fortnight. Bye for now. Solar Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solar design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly costs and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Solar Insiders is also brought to you by NextTracker, delivering some of the highest-performing solar assets in the country. Like a sunflower follows the sun, NextTracker's market-leading solar solutions deliver optimal return on investment for utility solar farms in Australia. Check out their flagship NX Horizon Smart Solar Tracker, their intelligent optimization software, and the industry's most advanced terrain-following solar tracking technology, NX Horizon XTR.